I'm going to ask the children to go ahead and make their way forward. Pastor Jeff's going to come teach them at this time. All right, guys, come on up. Find somewhere to sit. Come on over. All right, good to see you. Keep coming, guys. Keep coming. All right, keep coming up. Come on. All right, today we're going to continue preaching in the book of Acts. All right? And book of Acts. And in chapter 5, we're going to read, as Pastor Jeremy mentioned, about a man named Ananias. All right? Now, Ananias had some land, and he sold that land for money, right? And he brought some of the money to the apostles and said, here's all the money from my sale. This is all of it. I'm giving all of the money to the church. That's pretty nice, isn't it? That's pretty good. However... There was a big problem. The problem was that Ananias had lied. He didn't give all of the money from the sale of the land. He held back some for himself. Now, he could have done that. He didn't have to give it all. It was his to keep or to give. But the problem was that he lied about it. And in verse 4, it says, You have not lied to man, but to God. And so in his lie, it wasn't just that he lied to people, but when he lied, that sin was before God. You know, that's true of you too. Whenever you sin, you sin against God. And though sometimes you might even fool people and get away with it, God knows it all. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. So oftentimes when we sin, we try to hide it so that nobody finds out. Have you ever done that? Have you ever had a sin and you tried to hide it so nobody would find out? Yeah, we've done that. Sometimes you might even think that you got away with something, right? But you can never hide your sin from God. God always sees your sin. And when you sin, it has consequence. Do you know what Ananias' consequence was for his sin? He died. Yeah. He fell over and died right there. Now, that's pretty pretty wild, isn't it? That's pretty severe consequence, but that's what all of our sin deserves, right? The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve because of our sin. Now, a verse that can help us understand hiding our sin is Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13 says this. It says, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So for those who hide their sin, it will not go well for them. That's what this verse is saying. So should you try to hide your sin? No. Sin is really serious and has great consequence. And so what should you try to, what should you do with your sin? You should confess it. You should confess it and you should ask God to forgive you, right? And then, that's what the verse says, but whoever confesses and forsakes their sin. So we should turn away from our sin too, right? So you should confess it, seek God's forgiveness, and then turn away from your sin. That's why we have our time of confession during the service, right? So that it's another opportunity for us to confess our sin and to turn away from it. So many of you and many of you grown-ups 
have sin that we try to keep hidden. And so if that's true, if you have sin that you're hiding, I want to encourage you to come and confess it. Confess it to God. Tell him about it, mom or dad. Confess it to a pastor or elder. Confess it maybe for your kids, to your mom or dad. Let them know that you have that sin. And when you do confess your sin and turn from it, you receive mercy. We sang about that, right? We hear about that in the Proverbs. Whoever confesses and forsakes and will obtain mercy. God's mercy is more than our sin. And we can have forgiveness because of Jesus Christ. So thanks for coming up, everyone. You can go back and have a seat and listen as Pastor Jeremy preaches. Thanks, Pastor Jeff. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Acts 4. We'll be in Acts 4.32 to 5.11, although I'll start reading in 4.31. So at end of Acts chapter 4 to the first part of Acts chapter 5. Those of you uh, like to know where we're going and preaching, the plan is to continue preaching through Acts until the first Sunday in Advent. So that should get us through about Acts 9 or so, if I remember right. And then... We'll have four or five sermons during the Advent season on um, the Advent and coming of Christ, and uh, then we'll pick up in Acts again after the first of the year. So today, Acts chapter four thirty-one to five eleven, we see something that I think may seem strange, or at least it, if you're honest, it it is strange. You see in the end of Acts 4, that they have this, verse 33, it notes that great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And of course, for Christians, the word grace is the best word. We love the grace of God, and rightly so. Uh, We are utterly dependent on His grace. His grace is amazing. His grace really covers the whole of our Christianity. It is by grace that we're saved. It's by God's grace that we make any progress in Christ. It's by God's grace that we serve others with the gifts or graces that he's given us. It is by God's grace that we make it through this life and through death and to heaven. It is all of grace. And so we love grace. All of our songs sing of grace. And then in chapter 5, though, you have not only great grace as remarkable in this earliest of churches, but great fear of God. Great fear. Verse 5, chapter 5, and great fear came upon them. And then in verse 11, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. And both of these realities, great grace and great fear are upheld before us as examples of what the church should experience, what the church should know. We should know the great grace of God, and we should have great fear of God. And you can guess which one is more popular. Everywhere in the Bible, it holds up the fear of God as the highest of ethics, of, of like the, the highest of character traits to go after. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of God. And yet, 
if there is anything lacking in the church today and in our lives today, it is just that. We have no fear of God. We go to great lengths to avoid it. We refuse to sing songs that cause any kind of consternation. Pastors, I mean, the one thing they learn in seminary is how to avoid saying anything that might cause people to feel any twinge of any kind of fear of God. Because we want to be comfortable in our faith. We want to be just very middling, fair to middling. Like We don't ever want to tremble before God. In fact, we say things even like, well, it's not so much a fear of God, it's just a healthy respect of God. And yet here in the church, under the preaching of the gospel, these people know the great grace of God and God does something so awful among them that he teaches them great fear. This is what we want as Christians. This is what you're hopefully learning to come here for, that you might be awed by the grace of God and that you might tremble because you fear him. So do you have the faith for that? Do you fear God? Do you try to avoid it? What can we do but look at this text, rejoice at what God has done here. It is spectacular. This text is beautiful. And yet we are consistently reminded, as Pastor Mark just prayed, of how we are not where we want to be yet in Christ. And you read this text and you look at the end of verse of chapter 4 and how they were so generous and you can't help but have a twinge of guilt of going, I'm not that generous. Then you move into chapter 5 and you see this great fear of God and you hopefully remind reminded that I, I have no fear of God. I don't tremble before him. And so Jesus once said that like, they condemned him as a sinner because he partied too much. He had too much fun at the weddings. And yet they were they were too conceited, they're too dull to weep. They're, they're too dull to celebrate at a wedding feast, and they're too dull to weep at a funeral. We're so spiritually apathetic and, and dulled, and we, we don't experience either. We don't experience the thrill, the heights of the glories of God's grace and we cannot be bothered to weep at the depths of our depravity and tremble before the holiness of God. So this is what we want. We want to recover both. We want to have our hearts awakened to the majesty of the glories of God and to have our hearts tremble to experience the fear of God. 
Let me read. I'm going to begin in 431. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Well, it remained unsold. Did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of, our, of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. Father, teach us to fear you. And to love those and be companions of those who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. And so, God, we entreat your favor with all of our heart to be gracious to us according to your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're here again at the beginning of the church. We saw in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles and they preached the gospel in all of the foreign languages of those who were gathered and 3,000 believed, repented of their sins, believed, and were baptized. Last week, in Pastor Mark's text, we saw again the preaching of the gospel, and such that now we have about 5,000. And all of those in our text are of one heart and one soul. They're gathering. 
and we see the kind of church that the Holy Spirit is building, the tenor of it, the, the marks of it. They're marked by unity. They're marked by generous sacrificial love. They're marked by prayer. They're marked by gathering together to hear the preaching of the gospel. They're, they're marked by taking care of their own, and then they're marked by sin and God's discipline and a fear of God. Now, in the book of Acts, we'll see this time and again, that a general description will be given and then specific examples. So we see this general description of this really wonderful unity and generous sacrificial love, and then a specific example, Barnabas. He's also called Joseph, but if you have read Acts, you're aware of one of the the main guys in it, Barnabas, we're just going to call him Barnabas. You see this, this example of Barnabas, and he's highlighted, it's noted, because he was a Levite and because he was a native of Cyprus. That is, he would be one of the least expected to be this generous. Levites didn't own land. And yet, now, because really, they've just walked away from God's word, this Levite, who probably wasn't wealthy and probably only had a little bit of land, sold it. And then he wasn't native to Jerusalem, In the early church, we'll see this as we go on in Acts, there was quite a fight between the real Jewish Jews, Christians, those who were living in Judea, those who were Palestinian Jews, and those Jews who had left the fatherland and immigrated to Greek-speaking lands like Barnabas. So he would have been kind of thought of as a lower-tier Jewish guy. And yet this lower-tier poor Levite, sold and gave his money to the Jewish Jews. So he's held up as a good example. And then, of course, in order to highlight all the more the goodness of Barnabas and the goodness of the early church, you have the negative, Ananias and Sapphira. It's likely that Ananias and Sapphira were wealthy. It's noted that they sold a piece of property. Why does it note that? Because they had lots of it. You think of a piece of a pie, right? You just have one-eighth of it or one-sixteenth of it. It didn't hurt them. Unlike Barnabas, a Levite, a poor man, a little bit of land, they had lots of it. And so not only did selling a piece of it really not impact their bottom line at all, they were so greedy and so selfish that they withheld even a portion of the peace and lied. Now, don't forget either that this book, written by Luke, who is a companion of both Paul and Peter, was written likely as an apology for the Christian church. That is, as a defense of the goodness of the church. The Roman rulers and the Jewish rulers would become increasingly hostile to Christians. And they were often hostile based on false assumptions of what the church was. And so Luke likely wrote this 
in order to tell the truth of what the church is truly like. And so here is an example. Now you can see that Luke did his research. He went and interviewed these folks. He knew Barnabas. He knew where he came from. He knew details of Ananias and Sapphira. He even knew the amount of hours between when Ananias was judged by God and when Sapphira was. Just three hours. He knew these details. And this would, of course, lend to the veracity of it, the truthfulness of it. You could go and talk to Barnabas after he wrote this. You could go and talk to the young men who wrapped up Ananias and Sapphira and buried them. These things happened plainly in front of everybody. And so again, our Christian faith isn't based on myth. It wasn't given by some angel to one man in secret. These things happened. True events happening before eyewitnesses whose accounts were written down, who could go and be verified. This is why Luke always gives names. Because if you happen to get this book, this apology, and read these names, you could go and say, Barnabas, did this really happen? It did. But, even as we make this apology for the church, and the apology is, who could be better citizens than Christians? I mean, we take care of our needy. They are not ever going to be wards of the state. They're never going to be a burden on the income of the governor. Why? Because Christians take care of their needy. The widows will never need to go on the tax rolls. Why? Because the church keeps a list of her widows and takes care of them. Orphans are taken care of by the church. So this is presenting to the world the truth of the church. And this has been the consistent testimony of the church. You ought not to fall for the consistent lie, even told by many Christians, that the church just doesn't do the things that it should do. Christians don't take care of their women. The Christians don't take care of their orphans. The Christians, why don't we just do more? Like, who has ever done more than the Christian church? Everywhere the church is established, edu- churches got, or churches planted schools, they started hospitals, they fed the poor, they took care of the widows, they took in the orphans. Nothing has been better in the world than the church. And the church... The Christian faith, unlike all others, doesn't hide its sin. It writes about it. Tells the truth of David's sin. That then becomes a song to be sung for all ages in Psalm 51. It it doesn't delete the inconvenient truths of Ananias and Sapphira, who were members of the church. It doesn't present a redacted version of things to make it look like we're the squeaky clean. Not at all. And yet, we ought never to fall for the foolish 
lie that somehow the world will love us if we just act like this. That somehow if Christians would just be nice, if Christians would just, you know, start soup kitchens and put together Christmas wish lists and give them to the kids who need stuff. If the Christians would just do these things, then we'd finally be accepted by the world. This is what the church has always done. The problem is not that the church isn't loving, although that is sometimes the problem. The problem is that there is light and darkness. There are those who love God and those who hate God. We never do what we do in order to get the approval of the world. We do what we do because we love God and because we love each other. These folks, even though they lived like this, even though they sold what they had and that there was no needy person above them, were still absolutely hated by the world. Hated. They were hunted. Persecution was at its height in just the years following this kind of stuff. And so, we are going to learn in this text what a true church is like. But let me start with what we learn about the Holy Spirit in these verses. I wanted to read verse 31 because it says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And what we see in verses 32 to 37 is a fruit of the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. And then it's noted that when Ananias and Sapphira lied, Peter says that they have lied to the Holy Spirit, and then later says you haven't lied to man, but to God. So what's attributed in these verses is the work of the Holy Spirit. I said at the, when I preached the first sermon out of Acts that this title, the Acts of the Apostles, wasn't the title Luke gave it. And a more appropriate title might have been like the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit or the ongoing acts of Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're seeing described in these verses is the normal work of God's Spirit amongst his people. But first, let me just make plain a truth that we see here that isn't the main truth. But in 5.4, or in 5.3, when Ananias lies to Peter, Peter says, why have you lied to the Holy Spirit? And then in verse 4, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. So here again, we see this mystery of biblical truth that God is triune. That there is one God, and that this one God eternally exists in three equal persons who are each themselves fully God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So when Ananias and Sapphira lied, and they were lying against the ongoing work of the Spirit, Peter says that by lying to the Holy Spirit, they were lying to God. And so the sin here wasn't that they withheld the percent. They were more than free to give whatever they want. The, the sin was lying, and in this case, lying to this, against this great work of the Spirit, which is to lie to God. Now, Christians, part of our confession as a church, as Pine Grove Community Church, part of our creed that you confess is that you believe that the Father is fully God, 
that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is fully God, and that the Holy Spirit is fully God. And yet there aren't three gods, and, and neither are each kind of a third God. This is the mystery, and to deny any of that is to deny Christianity, is to not be a Christian. So what I want to just make the point here is, it's either Christian faith and these mysteries or some form of paganism that embraces God as some kind of a force. I think this is the way that many Christians conceive of the Holy Spirit. Not necessarily as a person, not as the third member being of the triune Godhead, who is referred to as a he, not an it, but as some kind of a force. Like Star Wars. This force. But God is not a force. God's spirit is not a force. God's spirit is not like a part of us. He is the third member, a he, God himself, completely distinct from us, far above us, holy. And so don't neglect the truth that we learn consistently in God's word about himself. One of our failures as Christians is to constantly want to reduce God down to our size and to lose our awe and fear of him. And one of the ways that we learn to fear him and be in awe of him is this truth. God is one. There's only one God. Yeah, this one God has eternally existed in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Father nor the Spirit. And the Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son. They are distinct. This is the truth we confess. If you want to study more about it, check out the Athanasian Creed. Or watch a couple of upcoming sessions of the class I'm doing on church history. We'll get to this truth in greater detail. But, not only is the Spirit the third person of the Trinity himself fully God, we note what the Spirit's work is here in the church. It's called great grace. We mark that the Spirit brought great boldness. Verse 31, they continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Where God's Spirit is at work among God's people, there will be a spine. There will be a standing firm on God's word. There will be a consistent boldness to declare the truth of God's word without apology or without how I kind of nuanced the beginning of James. You notice how I did that at the beginning of the service? How I helped calm your fears over the reading of James? After I got done, I thought, what a wimp. Because, you know, to read James... Draw near to God, and he will draw near to cleanse your hearts, you sinners, and purify your minds, you double-minded. I feel the pressure there to make sure that you, that doesn't hurt too much. Because God's word is hard. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. <laughs> but where the God's spirit is, there's boldness. That's one mark. That's one way that God's grace by his spirit is working. There's unity. We see this. They're all of one heart and one soul. 
There's a generous love, a sacrificial love that provides for those in need. And then there's discipline that leads to the fear of God. Now, we will see throughout the book of Acts supernatural, amazing miracles. We'll see it next week. But that isn't the norm. Now, understand what I mean there. I don't mean that miracles don't happen and that they're done. I don't mean that the gift of tongues has completely gone away. I do mean that the gift of tongues or the healings or the raising the dead were very rare even in the book of Acts. But the normal ongoing work of the Spirit in God's church is a love and standing firm in God's word, a growing affection and care for each other that leads not just to talk but to deeds. I mean a discipline over sin. That this is the ongoing work of God's spirit in God's family. We also see here that the spirit isn't under their control. They're under his. Now the Holy Spirit in the Bible is hardly often like the focus. For instance, you never see a prayer prayed to the Holy Spirit. You don't see worship directed to the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. You don't see forgiveness of sins asked to by the Holy Spirit. Almost all of that is directed to the Father. Sometimes to the Son, but almost always to the Father in the name of the Son. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one giving you the grace to do it. So the Father is almost always in the Trinity the one that everything's directed to. All of our worship, all of our prayers, all of forgiveness sought from all blessings sought from him. We do it in the name of Jesus because we know we have no standing before God apart from Christ. But the member of the Trinity that works that in us is the Spirit. But we don't control him. He's in control. Another way to say it is, When it says they have great grace, that means they had great need before God. And the Spirit was God's grace given to them to satisfy what they needed. And what did they need? They needed boldness. They needed unity because in sin we're constantly dividing. They needed fear. And the grace of God is his Spirit working boldness in God's word working unity among God's people and working fear of God before him and his judgments. That is the grace of God's spirit working in us. And so, if we consider who God is and his spirit and what he's going to do, what are then the marks of a true church? That's what we're seeing described here, aren't we? We're seeing what a good church, as we often say, what? I want to find a good church. We were in Branson this past week, and last Sunday we wanted to find a church, and so I want to find a good church. And it's kind of funny looking on the internet at some of the stuff churches put out there. (laughs) Oh my, it's been a while since I've done that. What makes a good church? Well, if, if you were to just make a list, an honest list, not a Sunday school list, an honest list, how do you evaluate whether or not Pine Grove is good? 
Now, there's a difference between kind of what you know you should say and what actually has your attention or what do you actually talk about with others about our church that makes you evaluate whether or not you think it's good. What makes the church good? Numbers! Right? Now, there weren't that many people in church that Sunday. It seems like there's not as many people coming. Numbers. That's what makes the church good, right? Finances. It's all about numbers. If you want to know anything about Christianity and what pastors are mostly concerned with, it's numbers. When I get together with pastors, the question that's always asked almost right away is, how many people come to your church? <laughs> and that, that's kind of like um, people at the gym flexing. The people who are really in shape don't wear T-shirts with sleeves. They wear tank tops because, you know. And the gals that are really fit wear really tight-fitting clothes, and the gals that aren't don't. And what pastors do is we talk about how big our churches are and how well we're meeting budget. And, and you feel that pressure too, right? Because... When the church is numerically good, the pastor's doing a great job. And when the church isn't, then he must be doing something wrong. Or, in the church, we have often considered it a good church if it's got all of the charismatic gifts. It's been an evaluation in church history. Churches that speak in tongues and are really full of the Spirit, and those that don't, aren't. You might think it's a good church if you leave feeling, feeling what? Feeling good. If the pastor had just enough humor, made you chuckle. You may be going to hell, but as long as you chuckled, he's a good pastor. If he had good anecdotes and he really brought the text alive for you, It's a good church. We we have all of these things. And none of those things actually are bad in of themselves. But what here do we see as the marks of a good church? Well, one is that they are filled with the Spirit. And that's hard to quantify. But it's closely associated everywhere in Acts with prayer. So a good church would be a prayerful church, a church that prays. A church that has boldness in preaching. We've seen that. But we must examine the fruit. What fruit do we see here? I've said prayer. I want to keep that before you in the book of Acts. Prayer is a consistent mark of a godly and good church. Prayer. Second, though, we continue to see throughout the book of Acts the gathering of the saints. They love to be together. They love it. They organize their calendar around the gathering of the church. They don't organize their calendar and then consider oh, I can't go to church because I got that already on my calendar. They won't miss it. They love it. They love it. They like to linger. After the service is over, it doesn't become a ghost town. They linger. And then after they linger for a while, they go and hang out at Friendship House or Casa Mexicana or 
wherever your house is. They like to be together. They love it. That's a mark of a healthy church. And then we have this unity. They're of full number of those who believed are of one heart and soul. Isn't that a sweet description? And honestly, isn't that just precious? How many of you grew up in a family that was like that? How many of you grew up in a family that wasn't like that? You know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, it, it was hard to be together. It's hard. Like, many of us, from my, my family was like that. Thanksgiving and Christmas, we look forward to it. We can't wait to be together. I know many of you, it, it's like time for real anxiety. Because you have to endure disunity and division and backbiting and gossip and dredging up years of sin and bitterness and this is an incredible now they're unified around the truth but they're mainly unified here in this text around a concern for the welfare of each other that's what they're unified around isn't that sweet that what brought them together is care Christ and his truth but then it was we want to take care of our own and so there's sacrificial love. We note, it's noted here, that there wasn't a needy person in verse 34, that as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them, brought the proceeds of what is sold. Now, let's be careful. There are mistakes we can make in Christians. One is just to be all talk and no deed. To say that we've got great faith, but it doesn't lead to works. So that's one danger, but that's not it. Another danger when we look at this is this kind of, okay, then, a Christian is somebody who doesn't own anything. They must sell it all and give it all away. That's not what this is teaching. They all didn't sell everything. Because then in just a year, they'd all be needy. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that if you owned 400 acres, you sold a 40 and gave it. Because there was another saint in the church who not only didn't have land, didn't have house, didn't know where they are going to eat on Tuesday and it's Monday. Or there was a widow and you had excess. And you... So, so this isn't communism either. So many of the, I mean, really stupid people who went to a public school probably and read this text and think that Christianity is communism. Of course, the difference is that they weren't forced to sell their land and give their business over to the government at the point of a gun. Like, th this was freely done. And neither is it an ungrateful demand of those in need. That's also an error we can make. That those who are needy deserved it and were owed it. We have that attitude in our world today too, don't we? We talk about privilege. There, there are distinctions in this church, aren't there? There are people who have wealth and have lands and have houses, and there is no note of condemnation of them for their wealth. There's no note of condemnation ever in the Bible for people who have. You know what there is? A submission to God's sovereignty who decides who gets and who doesn't. And nobody ever demands from somebody who has. 
We aren't owed this. And so for those of you who may be poor, who may have need, you are consistently taught in the Bible to put your hope in God. To never be demanders. There are distinctions. But the mark that we see here of the true godly church is sacrificial love. Now, I want to draw this out because many of the times when we read through Acts, what grabs our attention are the miracles. And rightly so. It is amazing. But what ought to grab our attention even more is this kind of everyday, run-of-the-mill, I care for your needs more than my comfort love. And I think maybe one of the reasons that we're so grabbed by the miracles and not so much grabbed by this is because this is really hard. This is really hard work. It's really hard work to care for an orphan. It's really, really hard work. It's very, very difficult to sell something that you own to give to somebody else. It's sacrificial. This is very normal, very mundane. There's no bling here. It's just Christians who see a need and meet it. And I think it's this attitude that should be pervasive among God's people. It's the attitude of, As you're walking down the hall, you see a piece of garbage and you pick it up and throw it away. It's an attitude of, I am not so important or so precious that I can't stoop. That I can't get my hands dirty. That I can't get on somebody's roof and tear off their shingles. Or that I can't go to one of our widow's houses and clean out her gutters. Or that I can't, whatever it is. That's the attitude that was pervasive here, and it's glorious. Now, again, there are real needs, and, and then there aren't. And our world has a PhD on saying that we're needy when we aren't. But where there are actual needs among God's people, we are the first line. Department of Welfare, Education, Medicine, all of it for each other. And this especially applies to those at the end of their life and those at the beginning of their life. This has been a consistent concern among Christians always. We don't stick our elderly in a home and visit them weekly. We do not. We often, unless our circumstances just can't permit it, we bring them into our home. And we help bathe them and we feed them and help them die well. This has always been a foremost Christian concern. From conception to death. Same thing with the young and unborn. Because they are always the most needy, the, the, the most poor, the most at risk. And then we see another final mark of the church is this discipline of sin that leads to a fear of God. The true church will always, always, always have sin. Any church that looks clean isn't a church. 
is a lie. I was on vacation this past week, and daily my inbox was filled up with emails zipping back and forth between the elders dealing with sin. <laughs> I was gone. I just got to read the emails this week. And one of my reactions was, thank God. These men are dealing with it. They're in the manure. I was at a pool. They were in the muck. Why? Because the sin will always have, or the church will always have sinners. And here we see that the true church has wheat and has tares. It has those who give generously and those who give hypocritically. And so again, the sin here wasn't that he sold the field and only gave 50%. He was more than welcome to do that. The sin here was that he pretended to give 100%. What, why did he do that? What was the motivation there? Isn't it insane what sin does? It's just insane. Why would he do that? Well, what gripped his heart? What had Ananias and Sapphira's hearts? What did they want more than anything? Praise from people. Reputation. Love of money. You cannot love people well and hold on to these other things. You, you can only serve one master. It's either love of God and his people or love of your reputation, love of what people think about you, and love of money. It's one or the other. You cannot do both. Because if you love money and if you love what people think about you, you'll do just absolutely insane things like this. And this is just insane. Can you imagine the conversation between them in bed? Hey, Ann and I, hey, Sapphira, let's sell the field and let's give half and tell them that we're giving the whole. It's just nuts, bonkers. But when you love money and you love what people think about you, you do stupid, 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 stupid stuff like this. This is what sin does to you. This is how it warps you. You ever done anything like this? Of course you have. Misrepresented, right? Why? You got to get to the why. What was driving the stupidity? The insanity? Well, the sin of loving what people think. Of loving the here and now. And God killed them both. Isn't that staggering? I mean, let's do away with all the foolishness that the God of the Old Testament is mean and the God of the New Testament is nice. My God. You know that death isn't pretty, right? It's awful to watch somebody die. If you think that Ananias and Sapphira's death were like clean, This is awful. This is terrible, what they saw. But they had a right response to it. Fear. Fear. Fear of what? 
fear of God. They were terrified at what God could do to them in their sin. They feared his coming judgment. They feared what God thought. And this fear led to holiness and generosity and prayer and all of that. So in closing, what do we do? Well, pray. Pray for this. Pray for this in your own life. Commit to gathering, as many of you do with the church. Take responsibility for each other. Take responsibility. Now be careful of those who manipulate you and play on your feelings. But we must never allow genuine need within the church family to go unmet. Ever. It's our job. It's your job. It's my job. Fourth, work hard. In Ephesians 4, 28, it says, Let the thief no longer steal, but let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Behind this text are men and women who worked hard and made money and had a budget and had plenty left over to help those in need. This gives you purpose for why you're going to work tomorrow. To generate wealth, to care for yourself and your own needs and the needs of those in your family, then to save money because you know that sooner or later people will be in need. This is why we work. Isn't that a good gift of God? You can be a part of that. And then by working hard, young men and young women, you know I've been talking to you about this. Start right where you're at. Don't ever leave a dish on the counter. Like this is the kind of ethic that's going on in this text. Wash the dish. Put it in the dishwasher. Put your shoes away when you walk in the door. If your sister is sitting where you want to sit, let her sit there. Don't be so self-important that you can't move a cushion down the couch. But this is the kind of thing that bears this kind of fruit. But it all starts with love. That's what this is, isn't it? This is God-wrought, spirit-powered, miraculous, supernatural love. Why? Because God first loved us. Let's pray. Father, help us. We come to texts like this and see our like we just barely have started the race. So many others are so far ahead that we fall short, that we are not what we should be. And God, far from leading it to despair or more pity party, help us to turn to you. And God, would you work and continue to work this kind of unity, sacrificial generosity, prayer, and fear of you. And so, God, please, by your Holy Spirit, do it. Give us your spirit as in that day that we might have these ordinary, regular marks of a godly, true, good church. And that it might bring you glory. And it might be testimony of this world that many might come and see it and see your work here amongst us, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I said during the sermon that they were probably educated at a public school. That wasn't kind, and I didn't say that kindly. Uh, So please forgive me. The charge is this. 
don't focus on the reality that Ananias and Sapphira held back part, but that they desperately craved a reputation. They put that before the glory of God, that before actual concern for others, and so they sought it in a very deceitful, sinful way. And so the charge is to let go of those things. You can only serve God. You cannot serve God and concern for reputation. You cannot serve God and just wanting to accumulate stuff and excess. It's one or the other. Don't let that lie get you. It's God and concern for people or I must be seen in a certain way. And so prayerfully put to death this craving for what others think about you. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord and I love you.